What are you afraid of? What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that frightens you the most? Perhaps it's financial insecurity. The possibility of losing your job or resources. Perhaps it's losing your home or even your possessions. Maybe this morning what you're most fearful of is your health. Getting the dreadful news that you have an incurable disease. Maybe what you fear the most of all is death. Perhaps this morning for you, you fear retirement. You fear the unknown of the future. Will I have enough money saved? Is my retirement plan sufficient? Perhaps what brings you the greatest fear is what people think of you. How people perceive you. What they say about you. Perhaps it's, it's the fact that if they really knew you as you know yourself. Perhaps if they knew what you did in the past. You fear what others think. And maybe you fear your friends or family finding out that you're trying to follow Jesus. Or perhaps you're afraid of the kind of parent you will be. Maybe you feel inadequate as a parent. What are you afraid of? For many of us, fear is born out of the unknown. We don't know something. We don't know what's going to happen. Therefore, we are afraid. We are afraid of the future. What will I do after high school? Or what will I do after college? Or what if I quit this job and move to this city or that town? What will happen? Can I continue to provide for my family today? Or what about the dreaded retirement? Will I be working until I'm 80? What will happen if I lose my job? What will happen if I die? What will happen to my family, to my friends? Will my family be taken care of? What will happen to my stuff? Questions consume us. The unknown paralyzes us and fear settles into our hearts. But this morning, the question I want you to think about is not... Merely, what are you afraid of? But what do you do when you are afraid? Where do you turn? Where do you find strength when you are afraid? This morning, we're going to consider yet again a very fearful story. In fact, throughout the pages of 1 Samuel, you find again and again this emotion of fear. And I just want to bring it out to you each week. Because I think God is trying to teach us as His people. We are to fear Him more than we fear perhaps the situations we're in or people. As we saw last week, God's people are in a fearful situation. Through the actions of Saul and his son Jonathan, the army of Israel has seen some short success. Uh, They had an assassination attempt, and it was successful, against one of the Philistine leaders. However, these actions by Jonathan seem to awaken a sleeping giant. Saul has amassed an army of about 3,000, for which the majority of them have deserted. Saul has 600 troops left, surrounded on all sides by the vast Philistine army. In troops numbering over 100,000, Saul has been cut off from the supplies from the north. Their weapons have been reduced to some rocks and farming equipment. They are up against the elite fighting force of their day. And they have nothing more than rocks and a few shovels. They are truly in an impossible situation. 
There is no way this small band of 600 has any hope of deliverance from this vast military force. What we saw last week is all the more important. That they did not fall into this impossible situation. They did not stumble into it. Rather, a sovereign God put them in an impossible situation. And that's what we want to see as we continue that story this morning. We see, what will the people do? What will the Israelite army do as they face this impossible situation? Well, friends, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14, page 235 in your pew Bibles. 235, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 14. Here the word of the Lord. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go to go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave of Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahiah, the son of Hetub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other. The name of the one was Bozes, the name of the other, Sinai. The one crag rose to the north in front of Michmash, and the other one, the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of, the, of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming up out of the holes that they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about 20 men, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a great panic in the camp, in the field, and among the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahiah, Bring the ark of God here. The ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now when Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. And there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp even they also turned with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all, of Israel, all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard of the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth -Avon. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening. And I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was, a, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was, was dropping. No one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. 
But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, the people, with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and, and dipped it in the honeycomb and put it to his mouth. And his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely of the spoil of their enemy that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Hylon. And the people were very faint. And the people pounced on the, the spoil and, and took sheep and oxen and, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with blood. And he said, You have you've dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul dispersed. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox. And with him that night they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man on, of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But God did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. And there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan and my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do whatever seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give ermine. But if, is, if, if this guilt is in your people Israel, give thumen. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who worked this great salvation in Israel? Far be it. As the Lord lives, there shall not, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. We'll continue with the rest of chapter 14 next week. What do you do when you are in an impossible situation? Friends, the point of this sermon, the point of this passage is that God saves those who trust in him but those who trust in themselves will be destroyed God saves those who trust in him those who depend upon him those who fear him more than their impossible situation in this story before us we saw or see Two contrasting characters, Jonathan and Saul. We see two contrasting people, Jonathan, who trusts the Lord, who, who trusts the power of God to save, and Saul, who trusts more in himself than he does the Lord. Well, this will serve as our outline this morning. Two points. First, Jonathan, who trusts in the Lord for salvation. In verses 1 through 23, we see clearly Jonathan displayed as one who trusts in the Lord. And then in the following, in verses 24 through 46, we see Saul, one who trusts in himself to devastating consequences. Well, let's look again at verse 1. 
and see Jonathan trust the Lord. We are told that one day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young men who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. While Saul was far removed from the front of the battle line, Jonathan was tired of waiting around. He was sick of sitting there on his hands, and he decided to spring into action. Jonathan and his assistant plan a surprise attack on the Philistine army, one that will bring them into the heart of the camp. This for them will be a do-or-die mission. They will make their way into the midst of the camp, in the midst of these hundred thousand troops, right in the center, in the heart of the, of the land, and there they will attack. For them, they will either succeed and live, or die and face a horrifying and humiliating death. But John, Jonathan here demonstrates tremendous faith. In verse 6, we're told that Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Come, let us go over. See what he says? It may be that the Lord will work salvation. It will be that, that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. We see a tremendous faith of Jonathan in the power of the Lord to save. Jonathan fears God more than he fears the Philistine army. His theology, we see, is founded upon his knowledge of God. He says, I know God, and God is able to save. Like Gibeon before him, God would deliver them, though they were few in number. And like his best friend David, Jonathan refers to these guys as uncircumcised. Now, Jonathan isn't just making a, a mere comment on their anatomy. Rather, Jonathan here is appealing to the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, which were sealed by circumcision. He's trusting in the power and promise of God to deliver. Jonathan knows God and is trusting the word of the Lord. See, God had promised the Israelites that when you go into the land and are surrounded by your enemies, if you will trust in me, I will deliver you. I will give you victory. Jonathan here demonstrates tremendous faith. You might remember in Matthew 17 when Jesus had come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He was confronted by a father whose son was demon-possessed. His disciples were confused. They had prayed, they had tried to deliver the demon while Jesus was on the mountain, but with little success. And they asked Jesus a question. They said, why could we not cast it out? What was it in us, Jesus? What was there, we don't have power, we don't have faith. What was it? And Jesus said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Here Jonathan demonstrates this mustard seed faith in the power of God. Jonathan wasn't looking within. Jonathan wasn't considering what he had in his assistant. Rather, Jonathan was looking to the Lord. And friends, this morning, we are also in an impossible situation. Our sin is so big, so powerful, it is outside of our control. No amount of good works or prayers prayed or church attended will ever be able to deliver you from God's just wrath that your sin deserves. But one day, the Bible tells us, that the Lord would save, not by many, nor by a few, but by one. Jesus Christ came and died the death that we deserve, that our sins to free us from this impossible situation that our sin has created. Through His death on the cross, Jesus saves His people from their sins and delivers them from the death they deserve. He died as a ransom, appeasing His Father's wrath 
so that all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Him would be saved. Friend, this morning, that impossible situation of your sin can only be remedied through trusting in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the greatest impossible situation you will ever face in your life. And only Christ can free you. Friends, let's, let's return back to verse 7. Look with me at verse 7 and look at how Jonathan and them behave. Jonathan says, his armor bearer says to him, Hey, Jonathan, I'm good. Whatever you want to do, let's do it. I'm with you, heart and soul. I am in this. I am your blood brother. Let's go to battle. Now, I want you to see here just briefly their plan, which isn't the smartest thing you will ever find in military strategy. Jonathan and his armor bearer decide to go into the midst of the camp, not stealthily, though they will travel there under stealth. Once they get into the midst of the camp, they're going to pop up and say hi. Look at what it says. I love the CSB really helps, I think, render this out. The Christian Standard Bible, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will let them see us. In other words, we're going to show our, we're going to be, we're going to go in and say, hey guys, we're here to talk. And if they, if they come to us, if they invite us to come, then we know the Lord has handed them over. But if they say, no, you just wait there, we're going to come and check you out, then we know that this is not going to be good for us. Not only are they going to the midst of the camp, but they are going to expose themselves to the enemy. But Jonathan here does not trust in his ability to defeat the enemy. He's not trusting that, man, my plan is amazing. This plan's going to work. I figured out how to defeat this massive army. Rather, what we see again here is Jonathan trusting in the Lord. Look at what he says again. Verse 7. Behold, we will cross over from the men. We will show ourselves. Verse, uh, excuse me, verse 9. If they say to us, wait, we will wait. Verse 10. But if they say, come, then we're going to go. And, notice what he says, for the Lord has given them into our hand. Jonathan is trusting in the Lord's power to deliver them from their sin, or from their enemy. He's trusting that God alone can deliver them from this impossible situation. And so we are told that they go over to the camp and that the Philistines invite them over. In, in words of derision, they, they call them Hebrews. We considered that last week. That's not a good word. Uh, that, that was kind of a dirty word. It's a bad word. It's a, it's a word of, hey, look at these runts. Look at these little people. Look at these little guys. Oh, how cute. They're coming up out of their holes and their rocks that they were hiding themselves in. For the Philistines, they saw the Hebrews, the Israelites, as nothing more than pests that needed to be exterminated. This is sim- you know the story of, of, of David and Goliath. That's what Goliath is doing. Goliath's a Philistine. He's a good old Philistine just like these. And, and he's saying, look, you little runt, what are you coming out to me with, with sticks for? What are you coming out to me with some rocks? You really think you're going to be able to defeat me? But here Jonathan is trusting in the Lord to deliver from his enemies. Jonathan recognizes and trusts that the Lord is behind this. And as we see the story unfold, God gives them victory over their enemy. God delivers them by this few, by Jonathan and his assistant. A great panic, we are told, is spread throughout. Look with me again. Just want to point you to a few helpful things here. Verse 15, and there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earthquake, and it became a very great panic. The elite fighting force of the day, these tyrants, ruthless raiders that would go in and sack entire cities are running around like a bunch of scaredy cats at Jonathan and his assistant. And we see that what is really going on here in verse 15 isn't that Jonathan is so great, but that the Lord is great. This tear demonstrates the work of the Lord. These natural forces, the earthquaking and people confused, is under the sovereign reign of God. God is at work here delivering His people. 
God uses all the means necessary to deliver His people. And there is nothing more frightening about Jonathan and his assistant. There is nothing scary about them. But behold, it is, as it proved, to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing. And we see God display His glory as He routes His enemies. Well, as Jonathan and, and his assistant are, are in the midst of this battle, we notice here in verses, nine, in verses 16 and following, Saul confused and not sure if he should engage in battle. As Jonathan and his unnamed assistant continue their assault, Saul's watchmen take notice. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. The NIV, I, I love the way they sort of flesh this out. They write, the, they translate, the army melted away in all directions. In other words, like melting ice in the hot summer sun, this vast army of the Philistines was falling to the ground and melting away. One by one they fell, yet without a single Israelite dispatchment. What these watchmen saw that day, what they witnessed was the Lord of hosts rout His enemy. When one faces the Lord, friends, He does nothing more than melt like ice under the heat of the sun. This is the power of God. This is the glory of God. This is the majesty of God. This is the greatness of God that we sang about and that we trust in today. Saul, unsure of what to do next, somewhat confused, not really sure. He, he begins here by, by going to the priests and praying, but we see in the text that he only prayed for a moment. The battle was hot. He was excited to get involved. He was tired of waiting around. Finally, something was happening. And for him, talking to the Lord was something to put behind him. What he needed to do is just, just get involved, get engaged, just to, to do this. Friends, remember the Israelite army did not have a single sword among them except for Saul and Jonathan. But yet God turns the swords of the Philistines against themselves to demonstrate to this vast army that He alone is the one who will deliver them. God is the agent who works salvation. God has put them in this impossible situation so that He and He alone could free them. God doesn't need man's weapons or military forces to defeat even the greatest armies of the world. He will turn armies against themselves. And what we see, the point of the passage, the point of the story, verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord saved Israel that day. Friends, God saves those who trust in Him. God saves those who depend upon Him, who trust in Him, who rely on Him alone, not in their own strength and own abilities, their own plans. The narrator of the text borrows language here, verbatim language from Moses in Exodus in chapter 14. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. The glory for salvation will always and forever go to God alone. God puts you in impossible situations not for you to impress Him with your ability to figure out how to get out of it. He is not impressed with your strength. But as we read in earlier, God is impressed with our weakness. For when we are weak, then he is strong. Friend, what impossible situation are you in today? Is it the impossible situation of your sin? Let me again exhort you to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ. What keeps you up at night? What is it that you are afraid of? What is it that is concerning you and worrying your soul? Trust the Lord's power 
to deliver you from whatever difficulty you face. Brothers and sisters, let us put our faith in our God who can save us. He alone can. And He alone will. And God alone saves for His glory. God saves to make a name for Himself. That is the greatest news you will ever hear in your life. That God will always and forever act to make a name for Himself. His glory is why He acts. Not because of your obedience. Not because of your faithfulness. God will save to display His great name among the nations. As a congregation, we face many impossible situations. From the lack of financial resources to our need to grow in discipleship and evangelism. And we must remember that we are an outpost in a foreign land. Folks, this is not our home. This is an embassy for another king. And we represent another king. And we must trust the power of God to answer our prayers, to meet our needs, and to see the light of the glory of God displayed through this local congregation as we faithfully trust in Christ alone and not man's wisdom. Brothers and sisters, we will face many challenges. This church has faced challenges for almost a hundred years, one after another. But God will always be the one that saves us. Not a new pastor, not a new document, not a new song or, or, or some new program, but the Lord will save His people from whatever possible, impossible situation we are in. Jonathan feared God. He trusted in the Lord alone for salvation. Friends, God saves those who trust in Him. In contrast to Jonathan, we're going to consider briefly his father Saul. Saul was one who trusted in himself to devastating, to devastating consequences. Look with me at verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid on, him, on the people an oath saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. After a long day of fighting, for which they expended thousands of calories, more than many of us, I'm sure, do in a single day, they were plumb exhausted. They were beat. No ounce of energy remained in these people. Over and over in the text, we are told they were Faint. The folks are ready to pass out on the side of the road. And foolishly and selfishly, Saul is more focused on making a name for himself than he is for caring for his troops. This is a contrast with Jonathan's trust in the Lord. Here Saul is demonstrating a pride in himself over and against his trust in the Lord's power to deliver he was worried that, hey, you know, if we took a break, then work's not going to be done. When I used to work in the trades, we used to have a saying, if it's not done before lunch, it's not getting done at all. And that was because most guys would go to lunch and, and gorge themselves on food, and, and then they would be worthless, be laying around all day and not doing anything. And friends, it's true. If you've worked in that, you know how folks are. Maybe that's true for you. I know sometimes it is for me. After I eat, I feel like, man, I just want to go take a nap. And that's what Saul was afraid of. Look, if we take a rest, folks will fall asleep. Maybe, maybe perhaps the troops will become uninterested in, in the fight, in the battle. If they took time off, perhaps their enemies would slip through their hands. He had forgotten that God did not need him or them to save his people. But furthermore, notice again in the text in verse 24, notice what Saul says. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Saul had forgot whose war he was fighting. Saul thought he was fighting his war, but rather he was fighting the Lord's war. Just a quick point of application before we move on. How do you act foolishly by thinking that God needs you? Because you don't get the rest 
that your body needs. How do you often overwork and overtrust in your physical abilities at the expense of trusting the Lord? God doesn't need you. Sun will come up tomorrow. Moon will be out today. World will move on. All without you. Your job doesn't need you that bad. Your kids don't need you that bad. So badly that you're so tired you can't even talk to them. Can't even find the rest that you need. Rest in the Lord, not in your own strength. Let's continue on, and, and, and I just want to point out a few brief things in the text. Uh, we don't have time to consider every little detail of this, but friends, we see in this really you know, three things, three paragraphs, where, where, where just the unfolding of the narrative that, that Saul displays his foolishness. In other words, the point of this is, is that Saul's foolish decisions led to devastating consequences. The foolishness of man will lead to death. So if you think you've got it all figured out, friend, if it is not in the fear of the Lord, if you're not trusting the Lord, your greatest plan will end in your destruction. We are told that the troops faced a temptation of a lifetime. They are up against a temptation of a lifetime. Not only are they starving, not only are they in desperate need of some calories, but they are walking through an all-you-can-eat buffet in the forest. Honey's dripping around them, all over the ground. Remember the promise of the Lord? What land was He giving them? A land flowing with milk and honey. Yet Saul said, you can't have that. The very blessing that God was giving the people, Saul refused to allow them to have. But yet, I find something so, so it's kind of amazing in this passage is the people's restraint. And I think the narrator's point here is to see the people's restraint as a contrast to Saul's inability to restrain himself. Remember last week when Samuel was this delayed coming and Saul had this sacrifice that needed to be done and he forced himself to do it. He, he couldn't restrain himself from disobeying God, the people demonstrate tremendous trust in the Lord. A tremendous faith and really contrast between Saul and the people. Well, Jonathan, unaware of his father's oath, jumps right in at the the spoil and begins to eat up the honey. And we are told that when he eats the honey, that his eyes became bright. Right, And, And literally what that means is that his strength was renewed. Right, Y'all been there? Right? You, you're tired, you're famished, you, you, you sit down, you eat a great meal, and you're, you feel better. Your countenance is back, you feel a little bit more positive, unless you went too far and ate too much, uh, then you, you kind of took it the other extreme. Right? We, we, we know that when we eat what God has provided, we, we are refreshed. And, and Jonathan is told that, listen, you have broken your father's oath. Jonathan's frustrated by his father. I'm sure he's encountered his father's foolishness on on countless occasions. And we're told here in the text, again, look with me again at Jonathan's response in verse 29. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I taste a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today, the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. In other words, my dad is an idiot. He is a fool. It would have been better had, it would have been a greater victory had these troops been allowed to renew their strength and enjoy the spoil that the Lord had given them. Here Jonathan demonstrates a greater wisdom than his father, a wisdom that will be revealed to us in another character, in his best friend David. The narrator is preparing us for David. As we behold chapter after chapter of Saul's foolish choices, all we are left with is, please God, give us a king who is wise. Give us a king who is not a fool and will not lead us to our own destruction. 
If Saul's foolish oath doesn't, isn't bad enough, things we are told go from bad to worse. Because of Saul's oath, the people are led to sin. Like many of us, if we were starving and we needed to eat something, what we tend to do is we overeat. When we are starving, when you have that feeling of starvation, like you feel hungry, right? Doctors tell us, nutritionists tell us, when you feel hungry, you're already past the point of feeding. You should have fed yourself much earlier. It's similar to when you feel thirsty, you're already going beyond the point that you should. You should have drank some water earlier. And so it leads us to overeat. And this is what we see in in the text. The people are starving to death and they find some animals. Instead of field dressing these animals as they were commanded in the scripture, they pounce on them. They jump on them, begin to rip them apart, begin to just eat them right there. Don't even cook them. It's a, it, it is a grotesque sight. All of which was brought to us by Saul's foolish choices. And in the midst of this, Saul seems to respond positively. He tells the people to stop sinning. Thankfully, someone there you know, was, was keen enough to alert him to this problem. And he invites him over to sacrifice and, and to rightly kill the animals in the right way, in the way the Lord had instructed in his law. But yet this single act did not make up for a lifetime of sin, a lifetime of rebellion against God. In fact, even in the midst of this, we will see in verse 36 that Saul is like, all right, we're done eating. Time's up. You've had your meal. We got that all straightened out. We got things to do. We got to get back to business. Thankfully, the priests were there to, to, pot, to, to caution him for just a moment and to say, listen, hey, you know, it might be a good idea to seek God before we go and do something like this. And the priests call back Saul and his troops and say, hey, let's seek the Lord. And as the story, as we read earlier, it's really not very complicated. What we find in the midst of that, in the midst of this, when the Lord does not answer, Saul figures out, he, he, he's, he's got a little bit of wisdom saying, hey, something's not right. God's not speaking to me. God must be mad at me. I must have done something wrong. And so he figures out what happened, and we are told that through casting of lots, that Jonathan is discovered as the one who had broken the oath. In striking similarity to the phrases that, uh, that Samuel brought to Saul in chapter 13, look with me at verse 43. Saul confronts Jonathan in his sin. And he says, Jonathan, tell me what you have done. That's the same thing Samuel said to Saul. Saul, what did you do? What, what have you done? What have you done? And Jonathan responds by saying, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Now, I think that the narrator has chosen these exact words of chapter 13 when Samuel confronted Saul to contrast yet again for us the point of the passage. Notice how Jonathan responds when he is confronted in his sin. Jonathan doesn't make any excuses. Jonathan doesn't, oh, you know, you don't understand. You know, I was really hungry and, you know, it was just right there. It just plopped in my lap. It just fell right on me. I just couldn't help myself. It just happened. You know, I'm sorry. Remember, that was Saul's excuse. Saul was like, hey, man, you don't understand. You know, you didn't show up on time. The troops were deserting me. Saul had excuses for his sin, but Jonathan, the faithful one here, says, listen, I sinned, you're right, I deserve death. Jonathan, unlike his father, doesn't make excuses for his sin, but accepts the guilt and punishment that his sin deserves. Friend, this is an excellent picture of how we are to respond when we are confronted in our sin. Not to make excuses, not to try to explain away or to justify. He doesn't expose the foolishness of his father's command, which was pretty foolish. He could have said, hey, dad, you know, you're, you're an idiot. This whole thing is dumb. Why are you doing this? this is, you didn't need to do this. There's no reason for this. He doesn't do any of that. 
He accepts that what he has done is wrong. And Saul doubles down. You're right. You're going to die. You're right, Jonathan. What you did, you're going to die. Saul is acting like even more of a fool here in this passage by allowing his son's death, by by sentencing his son to death. God had provided in his word, in the law, provisions for those who broke oaths, provisions for those who made rash oaths. But in a surprising turn of events, apparently someone had their Bible that day and said, hey, Saul, we don't need to kill Jonathan. God has made provision through sacrifice. Notice what they say in verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far be it, as the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. You see that good Bible word there, ransomed. They they purchased Jonathan's life through sacrifice. Again, the people, in contrast to Saul, reveal a trust in God who can save. The people are trusting that God can save. Even even sins like Jonathan's, God is able to save. See, See, Saul wanted a God who would save him from his sins, but he was not interested in a God that he could trust. Friends, this word is brimming with theological meaning. This word of ransom is the same word that God uses when he rescues the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He ransomed the people. Of course, that great passage in Revelation in chapter 5, that God has ransomed a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That God has purchased people for his own possession. Friends, do you see where the foolishness of man leads? If it had not been for Jonathan, if it had not been for the people, excuse me, Jonathan would have died because of his father's foolishness. Because of his father's foolish decisions, Jonathan could have faced death. It's a reminder to each of us that our choices have consequences. That every decision we make affects others. It affects people in our lives. It it affects our, our own salvation. I just wonder... Do you regularly seek the wisdom of the Lord in His Word? Or are you more impressed with your own wisdom, your own ingenuity, your own ability? Do you go to Him in seasons of prayer before making decisions? Or is it, God help me in this, my awesome plan, amen? Or is it a season time of praying and seeking the Lord? Friend, your lack of prayer reveals your pride. More than anything. God invites us to trust. As we look to Jonathan here and we see his faith. Friends, we don't want to just stop at Jonathan. But we want to point point ourselves to Jesus. We are reminded that, that we will never have enough wisdom to figure out the difficult situations we're in. I know many of you are in these impossible situations. You're not sure about the future. Let me again exhort you to trust in Christ. To find Him as the perfect one who perfectly obeyed His Father for you. We need help. And so ask God for help. Cry out to Him for help. Don't try to figure it out on your own. Friends, your impossible situation does not need more of your wisdom but it does need more fear of the Lord. Consider the Proverbs say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. The fear of man lays a snare, 
but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The pride of man leads to destruction. The Lord reminds His disciples that all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. Like Saul, those who fear man more than God, trusting more in themselves for deliverance, leads themselves to devastating consequences. It is only by trusting in the finished work of Christ that we will have the freedom that we seek. God truly saves those who trust in Him. God saves those who trust in Him. We have encountered some rich and encouraging theology today about God, about His power to save. And before we conclude, I want you to look again at verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far be it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. They purchased him through sacrifice. And this is a glorious picture of what the true Israel would do on the cross. What the true Israel, Jesus Christ, does for us on the cross is he dies as a ransom for every tribe, tongue, and nation. Here the people ransomed the king's son. One day, one day, God would send his son who would ransom the people for their sins. The king himself would come and ransom the people from all of their sins. So that, brothers and sisters, we would not fear our impossible situations, but trust the Lord alone. For he has proven himself to be faithful to save. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you save. We trust your power to save us. You've demonstrated this. And our prayer today is that we would trust in you. Whatever difficulty we face, whatever trial is before us, we would find this as a season that you have put us in, that we might grow in our faith and trust in you. Help us, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.